Zechariah 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and infallible word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, Lord, rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? <coughs> now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, you who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Right off the bat, I want to explain why this sermon is called The Lord's eye is on his prize. And it has to do with verse 9, that stone and the seven eyes on it. Like all the images in these visions, we have to ask, what reality are these pictures pointing us to? The stone has seven facets or eyes. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. And so while the exact meaning of the stone is tough to figure out, it's like the toughest thing in the text actually, it would seem that this is a picture somehow of the perfect seven, perfect knowledge of God in the sense that he sees and he knows all things. So what does God see? What is in God's view in this vision especially? Well, it's something critical and central to God's plan and mission in the world. It's the salvation of his people. His people, that is God's prize. You and me, his children, that's what the Lord all throughout history especially has had his eye on. From before the foundations of the world were established, his eye was on his children. He sent Jesus. Why? For his people. God's purpose through the church today, and even through this church right here, it's the keeping and the gathering in of his people. And that's what this vision is all about. It's about God saving his people. And we've got a dramatic picture of that in verse 2. God says, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? It's the picture of salvation. 
You might have heard of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. They're known in the history of the church. John was a minister who pretty much started the Methodist church. Younger brother Charles was a musician, and he wrote like 6,000 hymns. A few of those hymns have lasted and are in the hymn books in our pews even. And can it be, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hark the herald angels sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Rejoice the Lord is king are just some of the better known Charles Wesley hymns. Well, when his older brother John, who became the minister, was six years old, something very dramatic and very scary happened to him. It would be scary to anybody, but it would be especially scary if to a six-year-old. Think about this. He woke up in the middle of the night to find his house totally on fire. There was smoke. There were flames, as far as he could tell, from the top to the bottom of the house. Can you imagine that? Six years old, waking up, your house is on fire. And you know what? No one else was in the house. I don't know if it's because they had that many kids. They somehow forgot. Little John. At the last moment before the roof came down with the crash, a neighbor got up on another person's shoulders and was able to snatch him to grab this little boy from the window. And when John Wesley writes about that event in his life, he references our verse in Zechariah being snatched from the fire. Well, what happened literally to John Wesley being saved from fire, that's experienced by all of God's people in a far more important sense. The Bible talks about hell. That's the place of eternal separation from God, a place of everlasting death. And the Bible describes it as a place with flames and fire. It's a place where we're all headed unless we're rescued. That picture in verse 2, it's the most important reality for your life. You could talk about trying to be a good and nice person. You talk about helping others. You can even talk about loving others. You can talk about being a good spouse, a wonderful friend. You can talk about knowing God's word, serving those in need. But this is the center of it all, that we are saved by God in Jesus Christ. The picture of our rescue from the fires of hell gets filled out for us in this vision in Zechariah 3. First, we see that Satan accuses us in his kangaroo court for destruction. That's what we see, first of all. Satan's goal is our destruction. He wants to destroy God. He knows that's impossible. And so he's trying what's next best, to destroy God's works. He wants to destroy God's kingdom. He wants to take people down to hell with him, that place that he knows is already his certain eternal destiny. The scene in our text is the heavenly court. It's a, it's a courtroom. Satan 
is in that courtroom. He wants God to find us guilty. The Lord is there. He's the judge. Also, the angel of the Lord is there. And you remember who that is from previous visions? It's the Son of God in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before coming to earth, Jesus in the Old Testament. And he's the defense attorney. We have Satan as the prosecutor. He's the one accusing. And the person on trial is Joshua. Not the Joshua we think of who followed Moses, but Joshua, the high priest. The priests were the ones who worked in the temple. They organized the sacrifices for ancient Israel. Joshua was the priest in charge, the high priest, in Zechariah's day. The high priest in the Old Testament times always represented the people before God. And so that means that Joshua is a picture of all God's people. So Satan is accusing Joshua, but he's accusing God's people in this heavenly court. We come into this scene before we hear the prosecution. We don't say here what he accuses them of, but we can take a good guess from what we know. God's people in Zechariah's day had messed up in sin so much that God had brought them into exile, let their temple and land get destroyed. God had made a covenant to be their God always. All they were asked to do was follow their great and loving God, and he would be their God forever. But they didn't do that. They dabbled with other gods. They wanted God and other things. They wanted God and whatever other things suited their fancy instead of God alone. They were called by God to love others and care for the least of these in society. They didn't. They looked after themselves. They looked after their own interests. In their responsibilities and calling to God and their fellow human beings, they failed miserably. And you can bet that's what Satan was reminding God of in court. He's saying, God, these people failed you. They're miserable. They ignored you. They thumbed their noses at your calling for their lives. They deserve everlasting punishment, so give it to them. Satan does this to God's people today, too. He does this to us. Satan literally means adversary or accuser. So we know it's part of the core of his evil being to accuse. He wants to remind you of your sins and shortcomings. He wants you to feel you are completely undeserving of God's grace. You think God could ever love a sorry sucker like you? You dress up so nice and sit in these pews. But I know what you're really like. I know what you've really done. I, really, I know what really goes on in your mind sometimes. And Satan says, and so does God. You may look all pious, but you're the most self-centered sinner around. Now, of course, there is some truth to Satan's accusations. We are sinners. We are guilty sinners. But the thing is, Satan doesn't present the whole truth of the situation. And so he doesn't have much of a case. And that's why this is a kangaroo court. 
A kangaroo court is one where the end verdict has already been decided. When the judge and jury and outcome are in someone's pocket, in their pouch. Kind of reminds me of those photo stoplight enforcements at intersections. You ever see those around? Ever get the envelope in the mail? I have. Sarah got a couple of those in a two-week span a few months ago. And she does not, Sarah is very even-keeled. I, I wouldn't say she just totally lost it or anything like that, but she was more upset than I think I've ever seen her. How is that just? The cameras are the prosecutor, judge, and jury all in one. I mean, I think actually the program is being accused of lack of due process in assessing these tickets and fines, and I think they're under investigation. So I believe maybe some of you know more about that than me, but that's what I've heard. Well, Satan thinks he's got the case all wrapped up. There's something else that makes it a kangaroo court, and it's that Satan is jumping over key facts. That's what happens in a kangaroo court. You jump over facts. He's jumping over some key facts. He's jumping over the promises of God to his people. It's an important fact that Satan leaves out. God had promised in the very beginning that out of the seed of the woman, a Savior would come. And all throughout the Old Testament, God's reminding his people that through the promised Messiah, he would once and for all take care of sin, that he would atone for the people's shortcomings. Praise the Lord, Satan's accusations to bring us to destruction don't work. They don't work here. They don't work today. They don't work in your life either. Instead, secondly, we see that God's covenant for redemption will prevail. God's covenant justice for redemption will prevail. His promise to save us from our sins will happen. It will become a reality. God rebukes Satan. And instead, he protects Joshua. He comforts Joshua, the sinner, this guy who stands for all of us. And he says, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? It's like, Satan, how dare you accuse him? He's my child. He's my very own. In verse 8, it said very clearly where this is going. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. The Messiah was called the servant in the Old Testament. The servant who would come. God's promise was the servant. And Jesus was called the servant when he finally came in the fullness of time. And Jesus was of the family tree of King David, the branch the branch, the ultimate son of David. And then what we see is on the basis of Jesus' work to come, Joshua's filthy clothes were taken off and new clean garments were put on in verses 4 and 5. So this is a beautiful picture of a child of God being washed of the filth of our sins and then receiving Jesus instead as a righteousness. So you see, 
your guilt this morning, your sin against God, your sins against those around you, that's all very real. That's all very serious. But it's not too much for our God to take care of. He can remove your sin and make you new. And only he can do it, not us. You catch that? The Lord is described as having chosen Jerusalem in verse 2. And and Jerusalem, all throughout the Bible, it's a picture of all God's people in all of time. We call that choosing election. Joshua's activity is pretty minimal in this saving, in this snatching. Catch that, it's all God. The Lord snatches the burning stick from the fire. The Lord takes off the filthy rags. The Lord puts on fresh clothes. See, I've taken away your sins and I will put rich garments on you. God's people can and do get beat down by the accusations of the devil. I said it was Reformation Day yesterday. Well, one of the huge reasons we remember that day is because just before that time of the Reformation, and this was long ago, but it's important. History is important. In the years before the Reformation, the vast majority of the church, this was in the Middle Ages, the vast majority of God's, this is God's people, the church, Most of the people, I would even say, were getting fooled by the lies of Satan. They were getting fooled so badly by Satan, the accuser, that they didn't believe anymore that God took care of salvation. They believed they needed to do stuff like pay the church money to avoid the fires of hell. Pay the church money so loved ones who have already died could go to heaven. And to get forgiveness of sin, they would climb on hands and knees up the stone steps of cathedrals for hours, saying our fathers on every step to try desperately to get God to just accept them, trying desperately on their own to escape hell. Satan had so many people fooled with his accusations that they completely missed the promises of God. Thankfully, God raised up people who reformed and renewed the church so that people could see God's grace in Jesus again. And that's what we need more than anything today, too. We need to be brought where verse 9 actually leads us. God says in verse 9, what would be something completely crazy and totally unimaginable to the people in Zechariah's day. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. How in the world could that be? There was so much sin. The people failed. The city Jerusalem was in ruin. The Old Testament church was in shambles. But we know how it came true from our perspective in history. We know how the promise came true. The sins of all God's people would be removed in a single day, in one fell swoop on Good Friday, at the cross, where Jesus defeated the devil and exposed his lies 
and proved the eternal love of God for all who believe in him. He received the wrath of God against all our sin so that we might never experience God's judgment. And so God's covenant justice for redemption prevails. And finally this morning, it includes giving us a purpose and a bright future. Thirdly this morning, we find here in this vision that God propels us to a glorious life in his kingdom. God snatches us from the fire. He puts new clothes on us, not to stay home and admire the new look in the mirror. I'm not really into clothes, I wouldn't say. And if I were, I probably wouldn't admit it. But I like to occasionally update my wardrobe. It's nice to get a new pair of shoes, right? Or a new, a new shirt. Uh, my older two girls are in sports at school, Olivia and Hannah. So I, my birthday was a little while ago. Sarah got me some school spirit wear for my birthday. Now, how foolish would that be to put on my cool new spirit wear shirt and just stay in my bedroom or stay in my bathroom, look at myself in the mirror how cool my new spirit wear shirt is. No, I'm going to go out there and cheer on my school teams who, by the way, have been doing some pretty amazing things in sports the past few days, just as an aside. God's people don't sit at home looking in the mirror at the fresh clothes of Christ's righteousness that God puts on us either. God's got places for us to go. God's got things for us to do. We've got this calling in verse 7 to walk in God's ways. In other words, to live our life for him. Okay, plucked branch, says the Lord. Now bloom, Now blossom for me wherever I've planted you, in the home, at school, in this church, every day of the week, the evening time too, on vacation, at work. And that's always how it goes. Jesus forgives the sinning woman in John 8. And then he says this, Now go and leave your life of sin. That's what saved people do. We don't go back and wallow in the muck wearing our new outfits, but we do things appropriate for those who are dressed with the righteousness of Jesus. We're wearing jerseys with God's name on them and his kingdom colors, and we live and we act accordingly. We don't play for the other team. We don't root on the other team. This is called kingdom living. We live as citizens of God's kingdom. We don't build our own little kingdoms. We don't build the kingdom of Satan or man. And it's God's kingdom that we're giving a picture of in verse 10, the last verse in our text. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. It's a picture for that culture, this the vine, the fig tree, of perfect peace, serenity. Maybe it's like sitting on your front porch with a glass of lemonade. Maybe it's like a a cold fall night sitting around a bonfire with friends. Coziness, total 
peace and contentment. Your worries are gone. This is a picture of heavenly glory. It's a picture that's the opposite of the fires of hell where Satan would like us to end up with him. Though Satan wants to destroy God's creation and his people, God's justice in Jesus will create a beautiful future for all God's people. We'll experience it in heaven one day fully, but we have it now too, today. Verse 10 says, in that day, this is going to happen. Verse 7 Verse 9, I'm sorry, talked about sin being removed in a single day. In a single day, all the sin of the land is going to be removed. And then verse 10 says, in that day, you'll have this type of peace. We know that one single day was Good Friday. And so that means that in and through the cross of Jesus, which has already happened, we enter the kingdom now. It's a kingdom that God is building with his people, with his craftsmen, like we talked about a couple visions ago. You can experience life in the kingdom even now. And if you're saved this morning, if you belong to Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. This life in the kingdom, experiencing the kingdom. A peace that passes understanding in your life, even when the circumstances around you are far less than perfect. You know the joy that even menial tasks can bring as you do them as unto the Lord with the song in your heart. You know the potential for joy in marriage and in friendships when we're doing our relationships, walking in God's ways. Even in the pain of loss and heartache and an uncertain future, to be able to say, it is well with my soul. The blessing of being part of a church family and and giving back to the church like we do and being part of building it up like we are since it's God's primary tool to build the kingdom. Verse 10 says, in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor. How about that? This wonderful vision these wonderful truths that transform our lives and our attitudes, doesn't that make sense that we want our neighbors and those around us to experience it all too? If it all makes such a difference for our living, let's muster up the courage. Let's love people enough to invite them to the kingdom, to worship, to our small groups, Bible studies, service opportunities, to our homes for dinner. We've got something better to offer this world than anything anyone could find anywhere else. We've got it right here at faith by God's grace. We have it in our hearts. We have it in our homes. We've got Jesus and his perfect love. And we've been entrusted with his precious word to proclaim the life-saving news it contains. And we've got a story to tell, each one of us, that Satan's accusations and lies can't bring us down, that God has plucked even each one of us from the flames. And though we live and work in this world, we're actually on another team 
that is living a glorious life and has a glorious future in the kingdom of God that nothing can stop and no one can ever take away. May God do even more than he has already been doing through us, his craftspeople here at Faith CRC. May he do more through us here and through all those everywhere who've been snatched from the fire by his saving grace through faith to blossom by doing his work today, wherever we are. Amen.